today's Good Friday. Tomorrow is too. Good Friday is the day that defines all of our days, the 24 hours that seep into every hour after. Good Friday is the center upon which reality stands. Everything that was and is and ever will be, the macro and the micro, the stars beyond number and the dust beyond notice, all of it belongs here in the bloodied body of the crook that some still believe to be the Christ. Good Friday is the punctuation mark that every prophet and poet has longed to offer. It is the first word and it is our final worth. It is where we start and where we stop. It's here. In the dying of the only one who has ever really lived. That we too are able to live. That is, if we're willing to die. To follow Christ is to be faithful to this Friday. To recognize that the path to paradise starts on the other end of the world where death and darkness replaces our denial and delusions. It's here on Friday where we follow the word that came flesh and hung naked above us by taking off all our own layers and taking in all that lies beneath. All of our deadlines and duties our fears of failure and our hopes for advancement, the loves unreturned, the loves unannounced, the plans that never produced, the plans that fell through, the children that we raised, the children that we lost, the marriage that we had, the divorce that was hell. All of this that is in all of us tonight, we hold what we've been taught to hide and then we give it to him, the only one who knows how to pry away our stone hands from these stories that were never ours in the first place. It's going to be hard to be finally be human, to let go of our need for piety and live into who we are as people. It'll feel like we're lost, but I think that's how it works. I think that's how he said it would work. After sitting around the table one last time for one last meal, the Nazarene and those who knew him best sang a song together as they stepped toward the garden. When the final lyric was sung and the music came to a stop, time did too. Jesus turned to his disciples and he looked at them with wet brown eyes that were heavier than they had been before. He told the music men that the band was about to break that where he was going, they would not go. That when it came time for him to sing a solo, they would all turn and scatter. I don't think these were easy words to say. I think they were painful, but they were also permissive because like the father who financed his prodigal's trip to the far country where his boy gets lost and then found again on this night, 2,000 years ago, Jesus emptied his pockets of all that was God's and put in our hands all that was his. 
And then he sent the ones he loved into a place of loss, into the wilderness, into the dark, trusting that like a fetus in a womb, like a seed in the soil, like a Christ pinned upon a cross, we are formed as much in the darkness as we are but what's found in the light. It's why he told us that only the life that is lost can ever be the life that is lived. And so tonight, we bring all of us here so that we don't have to bring any of it home. We come here tonight to stare at the beautiful life that came from such an ugly death and to hear his invitation for us to do the same. in the vacuum of leaving, of being left. People are made, loved and lost, the rejected and the survivor. Life disciplines in silence. Teaching and our mentors are gone. In the light that creates shadows, darkness that craves the sun, our comings, and our goings, our meetings, and the partings, make of boys fathers, and women daughters, and the people that are made, in the vacuum of leaving and being left, are never lost. Whether you are the lever or you are the left, the one who stayed or the one who scattered, there is a stillness that fills the void of what once was. Not in the world around you, but in the world within you. And at first it feels so strange. It feels so wrong to see how the pain that hijacked your life has done so little to put others on pause. How their cars keep moving and their games are still played. How their parties are still had and their laughter is still theirs. But that's not the case for you. Not there, not then, not anymore. While the world spins madly on, you have come to a stop. Judas came to a stop. 
Judas became somebody at a stop. It was at a dinner, not the one that we would think of, but the other one. Not at the last supper for a man who will die, but at the first supper for a man who had died. The meal was at Simon the leper's house, and the one who lived and died and then lived again, Lazarus, he sat across the table from another that would soon follow suit. And in the middle of the meal, as the bread was being sliced and the drinks were being drunk, the weight of the room shifted to a woman who had walked in with $45,000 worth of perfume cradled in her hands. Immediately, Judas retrieved the pencil that was tucked behind his ear and he began writing on a napkin the details of this gift and he started strategizing as to how they should best steward it. After all, this is what he did. This is actually why he was here. Judas was the, the keeper of the cash. He balanced all of the books and he did all that he could to keep the divine out of debt. In a group filled with romantics and ragamuffins, loud poetic activists and dreamers who drank too much. Judas was the adult in the room. He was pragmatic and poised. He knew how to carry the costly things. But as he soon would find out, the woman who just walked in did not. Instead of handing out brochures and presenting a plan through which the party would sell the perfume to the people in town and the fragrance would finance the healing of all who were hurting outside, this woman walks into the room and she falls Onto her knees, she uncorks that costly bottle and proceeds to dump $45,000 worth of perfume onto the dirty toes of the teacher. $45,000 a year's wages. And for what? A temporary relief from odorous feet. Judas, he, he stood on his feet, and Judas, he stared at those feet. The scent of the perfume was no match for the stench of what she had just done. And so he yells out loud what he was sure everyone else had been thinking inside. Why are you wasting all of that money on feet? They'll be dirty again. There are pot-bellied babies to be fed. There is a militia that needs to get armed. We are not a people of means, and you had some means, and those means now mean nothing. Why would you waste all of that on ten toes? They'll be stripped of the scent in ten minutes. And after he said what he said, in that very moment where he expected the rabbi to have his back, he instead heard the rabbi say, what she just did was beautiful. You need to leave that woman alone. Judas slowly sat back down in his chair, 10,000 miles away on the other side of that table. He had come to a stop as the world kept spinning around him. Beautiful, he thought. Beautiful? Judas stared at the mess on the floor. It helped distract him from seeing the mess in himself. We do that sometimes. Ultimately, though, it didn't work. He knew why he was so disturbing. It had nothing to do with the woman. It was no secret why he screamed, because that scream didn't start in this room. It just finally broke out here. Judas screamed against the wealth being wasted because he was scared that the same would be said about his life. Like it, too, once had value. Like it, too, could have done some things. He could have been somebody, but he was a person who was like that perfume. And he just fell into the wrong hands that didn't know how to carry costly things. He pinned all of his hopes and fears from all of the years onto a pipe dream that looked at waste as wonderful and at loss as lovely. If this was a beautiful thing, though, and if indeed beauty is known through the eye of the beholder, well, then Judas couldn't and Judas wouldn't understand what it was that was being held. And he was tired of trying to act like he was the problem. 
because he was not the problem. Jesus was. It was Jesus who, instead of talking about how they would take Roman blood, said things like, take my blood and drink. It was Jesus who didn't think about bringing warriors with them, but instead brought women and children. It was Jesus who found new words and new ways to show everybody how love always wins. But as the only adult in the room filled with children, it was Judas who knew better. Love doesn't even work. Love won't lift the Romans' hands from our land. Love won't take my family's bodies down from those crosses. Love won't clean the water in Flint. Love won't fix partisan politics. Love is a child's game, and this is a grown-up's world. And in this world, only power pushes the needle. You need money, and you need might if you ever want to make a difference. This is a fight, and you're going to need more than feet that don't smell like feet if you want to win. All of this and more were in the waters that have been swelling in Judas for a long time. But now the tide was starting to break. Too many people were breaking around him for it not to. After all, Judas came for a victory. And Jesus didn't have a vision that would lead him to one. And so Judas got up. And he went to find somebody's that did. And then in the name of productivity and practicality and responsibility and a means justifying an ends and what needs to be done mattering more than what should be done, Judas strikes a deal with the ones who would soon strike the shepherd. And then he shows up a week later with money in his pocket and might in his shadow, the empire's proven tools of victory. And then he limps across the field towards the one that he left. He puts a kiss on the lips of the Christ, a sign for the soldiers behind him to put their hands on his body. And I hate that he did it like that because he didn't have to do it like that. He could have pointed from a distance, provided a description. He didn't have to use love to curse the lover, but he thought that he did. He thought that it wasn't enough to just get Jesus. He had to get something through to Jesus. He had to make a point that pointing alone couldn't have made. He thought that only in a kiss that led to a capture could Judas finally expose how powerless love is in a world of loveless power. How weak service is when the oppressor is holding a sword. What Judas is about to do is what he had wished Jesus would have done. And as hard as it was for him to limp beneath the olive trees on that night 2,000 years ago, as hard as it was to turn in the one that he loved, He did it because he was right. But then Jesus did something that was wrong. When Judas leaned in to kiss the Christ, the Christ kissed him back and called him a friend. Still, after everything, he called him a friend. The one that he came to betray was the one that was still called the beloved. And though it was certainly Jesus that was headed to his destruction that night, in the stillness of that stop, something in Judas was destroyed. The love that he came to expose took the first swing, and something in Judas broke. Like the touch of the spring sun on the blankets of winter snow outside, every budget book and balance sheet and pragmatic priority within him suddenly started to melt as the powerless love that looked like it could only bark suddenly start to bite. Judas had been bit. And then we see Judas back where he made the betrayal. 
with shaking hands and swollen eyes. He is back in the temple where he is throwing the coins back at the ones who first threw them at him, recklessly making a mess on the floor as the blood money goes untouched. To all who were in power and clothed in prestige, to every eye that was in that room, they all shook their heads as they looked at that money scattered out on the floor. It all looked to them like it was just such a waste. But in the vacuum of leaving and being left, in the stillness of that stop, Judas learned that love usually does. The church is not doctrine in search of obedience. It is love in search of form. Though that's not a search that we tend to seek. The reality is that it's much easier to be obedient than it is to be an offering. It's easier to climb a ladder than it is to commit to the ways of love. And yet our story is a love story. And our love is patient, not productive. Our love is kind, not coercive. Our love protects, trusts, hopes, perseveres, and our love never fails. Though it often looks like it's failing. Like generosity over greed isn't good. Like forgiveness over vengeance is naive. Like saying I'm scared isn't braver than staying quiet. Like solidarity with the suffering doesn't change personal pain. Love never fails, but it often feels like it's failing. It looks like a loss. At least today on Friday it does. But as we turn and stare at the body that died on that cross 2,000 years ago, we do it with Sunday in mind. And through the eyes of what will happen, we look at what is happening and we hold tightly to the truth that every love story has always longed to tell. That sleeping beauty will wake up, that Judas will grow up, that the Christ on the cross will leave an empty cave, that if death has lost, we have nothing to lose. You have nothing to lose except for your fear of loss. That has to leave so that you can live. To take on the love of Christ is to take on a love that loses, that empties oneself for the betterment of another, that doesn't consult affordability before choosing generosity. As the next song plays, Imagine being the woman who walked into the room with the perfume cradled in her hands in that precious bottle in your one precious life, waiting to be broken and poured out for the lives of those around you. How will your life be broken in order for your love to be beautiful? What would your life look like if you weren't afraid of loss? Strangest thing was waiting for their bell to ring. 
was the strangest star that I could feel it go down Bittersweet I can taste in my mouth A silver lining In the hierarchy of our relationships and the roles that we hold within them, friendships tend to rest at the bottom. On the ladder of life, partners, parents, and kids, each of these groups are a few rungs above the friends that we love on the bottom. But please don't confuse bottom with bad, because in many ways, and of all the rungs, the bottom rung is the most beautiful. Unlike our family relationships, where we are legally or biologically bound together, there is no obligation on the bottom. You have to opt in on the bottom. Friendships are not a product of our inheritance, but are produced by our intentions. Friends are friends because they want to be, and we want to be, which is a double agent. It's a good and it's a bad, seeing as you have no control over keeping the one who found a way into your life from ever finding a way out. And of course, over time, they often do. The older we are, the less friends we keep, as the years add more people who need to be prioritized, duties and demands that need to be met, after all, it's much easier to skip out on getting a drink with Johnny than it is to miss your kid's first play. This is why weddings have a bittersweet taste to them. 
we bring all of our friends together to both celebrate a new union and in some ways and in sad ways to say goodbye to an old one. Being a friend is a beautiful and burdensome wonder and I think about that when I think about Peter and Jesus, about their choosing and being chosen, their starts and stops and straying in between. It's those two that my mind goes to because Peter was the one that Christ kept the closest. If you counted all the disciples who get a mention in the Synoptic Gospels, you'd find that John and Judas pop up 20 times, Andrew 12, Thomas 10, Bartholomew, James, Simon, and Thaddeus 3, but Peter is present on almost every page. He shows up over 120 times with Jesus by his side. And yet tragically on this particular weekend, we don't remember Peter for where he always was in those first three books. We remember Peter for where he wasn't in those last three days. We don't remember how Peter was the first to call Jesus the Christ. We remember how Peter was the last to call Jesus a stranger. And we only do this to him because it's what we do to ourselves. We only define Peter's story by Peter's darkest moment because... Well, we've yet to find a way out of doing that to ourselves. We've yet to find a way out of the wound that she gave us and the wounding that we gave them, to find a way past the addictions that we can't quit and the marriage that we couldn't keep, to find a way to call the kids that we lost touch with and that career that we lost ourselves in. What we do to Peter, we first do to ourselves because the wound grows so wide that all of us who are wounded, eventually we just fall in. Jesus knew this. And Jesus refused to let that happen to his friend, Peter. And so he told Peter what was about to happen. On the night before the night of Christ's execution, dinner plans were made in an upper room deep in the heart of Jerusalem. And at the end of the meal, with the bread and the wine and the Judas all gone, Jesus turned to face his closest friend, Peter, and he looked at the rock that the church would stand on, and he told him that he was about to sink. He told him that after all they had been through, after all they had seen together, their paths were about to part. And that when they come for me, you'll run from me. That's what he said. But he also said why he said it. He told him that, Peter, I have been pleading in prayer for you, that your faith should not fail so that when your feet start to fall, when your character starts to crack, when you find yourself in a place that you thought you'd never be, and it's dark and cold and lonely, and you feel heavy and shamed and ugly, know that I already know that you are going there, and you can still come home. I still choose you as my friend. I'm still opting in. Yes, our story will strain and start to slip, but it will never stop because I will not stop. I still choose you as my friend. I'm still opting in. The poet William Blake said one of the truest things that's ever been said. He said that one of the great tests of life is to be able to endure the beams of love. When Jesus prayed for Peter, that was the test that he was praying he would pass. Jesus prayed for his friend Peter. And Jesus prayed for all the people who'd come after him. Jesus prayed that they would hear a word that is deeper than the wound that is speaking to them tonight. 
that they would hear the touch of the one who sits at the table. That they would hear Jesus say that I know that you are flawed and that all of your fear has left you fragile. I know you will make a mess. I know you will denounce me and deny me. And I know that you will tell me that you'd rather die than do something like that. But even when the bruises come, even when it feels like the pain won't leave, even when all is lost and the world is crumbling around you, Peter, bear the beams of your own belovedness and come back home. For you are the rock. And now you, the one who both stands and sinks, I'm building up a people who I'm choosing to call my friends. And even when they opt out again, I will continue to opt back in. For I know who you are and I know who they are. And I want you to come home. I need you to come home. On this night, we watch as Jesus' body is carried into the grave because he died. And on this night, we remember how, how so many of us go into the grave because we lived and lost and were hurt and were hurtful. Each one of our paths is covered in potholes that we continue to slip inside of, and yet, like one sheep that strays away from the 99, the shepherd will not sleep until you are safe. Jesus knows about the landmines up ahead where you will stray again and again. And yet the front door into love's arms remains open. You can come home. You have nothing to hide because he already knows. Jesus knows all of the holes that we've fallen into and he knows that we don't know if we can ever climb out. Which is why Jesus tells Peter and every person that would come after is that you don't have to clean, to be clean before you come home. You don't have to hide. You could be healed. But you'll never come home unless your story stops being defined by all that you've lost and starts being defined by how much you're loved. The Sufi poet and mystic provides the task that we each will take on during the next song. Your task is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you've built against it. What are the barriers within you that have kept you from bearing the beams of love? sadness from wherever you've been come broken hearted let rescue begin come find your mercy or sinner come in earth has no sorrow that heaven can heal earth has no sorrow
by many and felt by more that to parent a child is to put your heart outside of your body with no defense for the arrows that are on their way. 
A parent's heart is a punctured heart, wounded from the wear and tear of love. And in the course of human history, perhaps few hearts have been as badly bruised and bloodied up as the heart of Mary, the mother of the Messiah. For us today, to think of Jesus is to think of Mary, for it was from her that he took on who he was, the color of his eyes, the cut of his nose, the strange way that he smiled even when words weren't being spoken. The way he laughed was like her father's laugh. The way he danced was like her mother's. Mary is the one who taught Jesus how to talk, how to walk, how to read. She is the one who kissed his knees when he fell over stones. And it was her bed that he ran to when the nightmares would wake him up. To the world, Jesus was the Messiah, the rabbi, the savior. But for Mary, that was her baby. The soft space in her heart that would never grow hard, even when everything else did. As Jesus grew older and his work came closer, there was a space that seemed to grow between the two. The space first started to stretch at a wedding in Cana when the wine ran out. Knowing what her child was capable of doing, Mary turned to her son and told him what had happened. And when she did, Jesus looked back at her with the eyes of a stranger instead of a son. And he said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. The parent's heart is a punctured heart. And with the face flushed and red and two eyes that squinted tightly to dam up the tears that were rising quickly, Mary looked around at the others who were staring now at her. And she said, do whatever he tells you, as she slowly limped away. These would be the last words that we ever hear from Mary. Those five words, do whatever he tells you. It's almost as if the writers knew that the right thing to do was to turn off the cameras at this point and just leave her alone. Wasn't it obvious that she was going through enough as is? Do we really need to broadcast this pain any further? Her baby, who had always been just her baby, and this mother, who had always been his mother, to him she was now just a woman, and to her he was now a wound. The one who used to squeeze her hand whenever they go into the market because he hated the sound of loud noises. He clung only to his hour now, to the time that had come for him, and to the time that came too soon for her. For thousands of years, theologians have helped us connect the theological dots so that we can make sense of this story, of their relationship. But with all due respect, this isn't a theological issue. It's easy to study the psychology of a broken heart and learn what happens to our neurons when we ache, but it's another thing entirely to reach out for the one that you love the most and discover that they aren't doing the same thing back. Mary prayed that her reach would again be met by his. But what happened in Cana didn't stay in Cana. That point in their story became somewhat of a pattern. A little while after this moment, Jesus was speaking and a crowd was pressing up against him, leaving him with no space to eat or think or breathe. And in the middle of that chaos, Mary showed up, but she stayed on the side. She looked in with a creased brow, worried about her child, and then she sent somebody in to check on him. Tell him that we're here, she said, hoping that he would care. Mary watched the man enter into the frenzy and make his way up to her son, 
But instead of Jesus climbing down and coming to his kin, he only climbed higher and he stayed with the crowd. He looked at that man and then he looked at the crowd and then he shouted out loud, who are my mothers and who are my brothers? Here are my mothers and here are my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. Their voices weren't captured in the Gospels, but there are some who were there that swear they saw tears sliding down Mary's cheeks and off her trembling lips that muttered, I'm your mother. These are your brothers. Later still, on another occasion, Jesus was passing through a crowd when a woman yelled, Blessed is the mother that gave you birth and nursed you. A high praise for Mary that had almost started to sink in when she heard her son stay. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. A parent's heart is indeed a punctured heart. Mary had lost her son long before the world would ever sing about it. She was the first to know what it was like to be scattered. And she couldn't seem to find the boy that she used to hold. But that didn't keep her from looking. It didn't keep her from staying with her son. Even when all of his friends had left, Mary never flinched. She stayed with him all the way from Cana to the cross, from the crib to Calvary, where this mother was forced to sit and stare at her baby boy being broken and bent and pinned against these beams. And still, Mary never left. Mary never flinched. She wept. She wept those deep tears that every parent carries within them. Those tears that come out when you see your kid in so much pain and you know that there's nothing that you can do to make it stop. She had no kisses that she could offer up as a cure. She had no beds that he could climb into where she could tell him everything is going to be okay. All she had was her tears and her stubborn love that kept walking even as her heart kept cracking with every step. That was her boy up there. The love of her life was being torn naked in front of her. That was her child up there. The best part of who she was and the hardest part of all that she was. She could barely breathe. He was barely breathing. But then with the little life that was still left and the one who gave so much of his life away, Jesus lifted up his eyes and he looked into the eyes that looked like his and he said to the man that was standing next to his mom, boy, Take care of my mom. Treat her like you're her son. And the scriptures say that from that point on, that disciple who Jesus spoke to, he took Mary home. And when he did, Mary understood why so much had been taken from her. Mary understood that her son's love for his only mother, it was never gone. It had never stopped. She knew now that he had always loved her and he was always loving her. All of the space, the separation, the cold shoulders, the ugly pain, it was all preparation for this parting on the hill. Even when there were 10 towns standing between them, that child had held her hand the whole time as he led her through a thousand deaths before his death, as he showed his mom that he had, she had to let him go before she'd have to watch him be taken away. Mary is the first disciple because Mary was the first to understand that love is always fierce and yet also very fragile. It dares greatly, but it holds loosely. 
Mary is the first disciple because she is the first to follow with open hands, willing to be wounded yet unwilling to stop walking. Mary is the first disciple because Mary was the first to love Jesus like Jesus loves us. The love that in the midst of being crucified still forgives the crucifier. May the same be said about us. Mary reminds us that strength is not defined as the absence of wounds, but rather is displayed in the wounded who keep walking. Mary reminds us that weakness is the way and that freedom requires a love that is always fierce and also fragile, that is compelling and crucified. With all of our pain and anger and despair and doubts, we remember Mother Mary, the punctured heart that is always found in the ones who love fiercely and hold loosely. And we pray that we will have the courage to follow her son like she once did. In a moment, the cross will pass over you. And when it does, let a prayer rise up in you. Pray that you will have the courage to love fiercely and hold loosely in the same way that you pass the cross without clenching it. Pray that you will have eyes to see what Mary once saw. The truth that God doesn't want any of us to be in pain, but God won't waste any of our pain when we're in it that there will be good that comes from this death that we feel like we're drowning in. That in this too, there will be beauty that comes from these ashes. As we reflect, let's pray this aloud together. Forgive us, Father, for we do not know what we do. In our efforts to honor you as a person, we have forgotten to follow you as a path. With clenched fists and fearful eyes, we have held our lives too long. And so tonight, we ask for courage, Lord. We ask for courage to let the seed fall. We ask for courage to trust that our birds always begin in our burials. We ask for courage to believe that weakness is the way. We ask for courage to love even if it leads to loss. We ask for courage to seek when you cannot be seen, to hold on when it feels like we aren't being held, and to keep walking even as our hearts are punctured with every step. In the soil of Good Friday, we lay our stories, these seeds, trusting that in the harvest of Easter, with you we will rise again, that in the absence of leaving and being left, we will be people who are made.
God, I'm a sea.